This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. It is fantastic to be with you on this Thursday. As always, Thursday is going to be our really big show. So thank you for being here in the Situation Room where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here this evening, and uh, if you're listening to us on the replay on News Radio 1440, Saturday, whatever time you happen to be listening to us, we appreciate you allowing us to have a little bit of your time. We will do the best that we can not to waste it. It is Thursday, which of course means it is time for our coronavirus update, so we are going to go straight to the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Now, you can see there on their interactive map that we've taken a still of that right now there are 27,796 confirmed cases, 322,124 that have been tested. Unfortunately, 801 Alabamians have lost their lives to the coronavirus, and we currently have 2,373 hospitalizations and 15,974 presumed recoveries. So looking at all of that in review, you can also see on that map and uh, when you look at it that the river region, and actually maybe it'd be a good idea to bring that up just for one more second. So we'll go ahead and bring up that graphic. You'll notice that the river region still definitely seeing a a larger percentage of our population, because remember, this is adjusted for population. This is per 100,000 people. So adjusted for population, central Alabama and that river region area, definitely seeing a lot more red, definitely seeing a lot more activity and a larger percentage of our population with the virus. And Different counties, even ones that house major population centers like Jefferson County, like uh, Mobile County, like uh, Madison County, that we've all kind of climbed ahead of those. And but you will also notice that it's actually not quite as dire as last week. And and the uh, the the population like, of course, the numbers have actually gone up just like you would expect when cases go up that they're going to go up for everybody they're not going to go in the opposite direction uh but they've i guess adjusted how they're they're ranking it and the level of red that you're seeing on the map it's it's not quite as bad this week i'm not sure if that's because they adjusted the standard or what but that's what you're looking at right now and one thing that i wanted to to bring up because you'll notice that it's it's that real heart of Alabama right around where Montgomery is that is seeing such a high concentration of that. I do genuinely wonder, and I don't know that this is true. I don't have any data ba- to back this up. This is sheer speculation, and I, I want to make that perfectly clear. But I think it's at least possible. Part of the reason the River Region is seeing a much larger percentage of it is that the other cities actually have numbers, maybe not exactly the same as ours, but similar to ours. But the reason that you're not seeing that is because of when their spikes hit. You, you may remember that if you've been watching this show and, and been following it since the beginning, Jefferson County had a substantial spike. It was just very early on. And Mobile County had a substantial spike that followed a few weeks later. 
Huntsville kind of got a little bit of a, a hiccup. I don't even know you would call there's a spike. And, and keep in mind, when I'm saying spike, I'm not talking exponential growth like we were expecting early on. We never got to those levels. Uh, no part of the state has. Montgomery still hasn't. I'm talking about the, the biggest jump in cases on a daily basis. And so Jefferson County definitely got there, along with Shelby County and, and some of its surrounding areas. Uh, it hit that pretty early, and it was a hotbed very early on. But you'll remember that testing was not nearly as available, not nearly as robust. And so what I think probably happened is now that testing is much more available, it's much easier to go get, and people are less scared about leaving their home to at least go and get tested and see if they have this thing, I think that it's possible that roughly the same amount of the population of the cities like Huntsville, like Birmingham, like Mobile County, a pretty similar percentage of the population actually wound up getting the coronavirus. It's just that Montgomery got there so late that it was after testing was more or less, uh, you know, standard operating procedure. They already had a plan worked out. They already knew what testing was going to look like. We had more accurate testing when Montgomery really hit our stride. And, and Montgomery still to this day right now is still considered a hotbed. And, and by the numbers, it should be. But I also think it's important to note that it is possible that part of the reason that our numbers are so much higher than the others uh, as a percentage of our population, it may be because a lot more of our people are getting tested than they did when they hit their spikes. So we're still seeing an increase, still something to be concerned about. I'm not saying we should disregard that. I'm saying that at least part of the reason that may be doing that, and even if it's not similar numbers, I still think that probably it's being skewed. And the only way to know that for sure is if we could start doing antibody testing on a wide scale. And to be honest, I'm not sure maybe it's a cost thing. Maybe it's that the antibody testing isn't really quite ready for prime time yet, even though I know that there are people that have it and, and have been able to get it. I'm genuinely wondering what the holdup is, but I don't understand why the government is not doing massive broad-scale antibody testing because that may be one of the most helpful things that we could do right now. For example, let's say that you are a generally, not even necessarily a super young healthy person, like a 22-year-old in great shape. Uh, let's say you're just like in your mid-40s or something like that, but you have a steady job and you've not been able to go regularly because of that, you get an antibody test, you're good to go, man. If you know that you've got antibodies in your system, which means you had the virus at some point and it just turns out that you were asymptomatic, never knew that you had it, well, I'm not saying that you can throw all caution to the wind, but you're pretty much back to life as normal at that point because you can't spread it because the virus isn't in your system anymore. And all studies that we've seen here recently show that reinfection, at least in the short term, is pretty much a non-possibility. So think about how many people could just go back, return to life as normal if we got these antibody testing rolled out. And so that's something I really, really hope happens soon. And uh, I think that really what's going on is the hotbeds, all of them, whether it's Montgomery now, whether it was Birmingham then, have quite a few asymptomatic people, but that doesn't show up on the testing. And, and so you had a whole bunch of either asymptomatic people or people that did have symptoms that did get tested, but they were very mild. And so we just know about more people that got the virus in Montgomery and Elmore County and Otaga County and Lowndes County and the surrounding areas 
than we did when you saw this thing popping up really big in Birmingham and Mobile. I don't know that for sure. That's my guess, but I really do want to see the data and see if that is correct. And another really good piece of news, because we'll occasionally uh, factor this out and tell you about where the fatality rate is. The fatality rate, if you're looking at the new numbers, has dropped to 2.88%. This thing's dropping like a rock. We were at almost three and a half one week ago. Which is a testament to a couple of different things. First of all, like I've been saying and like we've been talking about, the reason that we know that Montgomery's a hotbed, the reason we're having such big numbers, is because testing has become more robust. And so when you've got a lot more testing, you know that a lot more people have it that you didn't know have it previously, and antibody testing would help even more than this, that when you look at uh, this fatality rate of 2.88 and see how the fatality rate dropped uh, not quite a whole percentage point, but close to a whole percentage point in one week? Well, the only possible explanation for that, the only way that you could understand that, is if testing is getting a lot more broad, which it is. And I think what's going on is a lot of people that are just, you know, unsure, but they feel something, they're having really mild symptoms, they're not asymptomatic, but they're barely feeling it, are probably going in and testing because it's more available. And considering how quickly this thing is dropping, because you remember, we've been tracing this thing for a while, and to drop this much was taking three or four weeks. And now we're dropping by about that same amount in one week. I mean, that's a very steady decline. That's, that's a pretty steep incline to go down. This is like going down the first, uh, the first hill on a roller coaster. So this thing is dropping very, very quickly, which is very encouraging. Because like we've said and like the science has shown, the realistic fatality rate, if we actually knew all the people that had it, if we actually knew all the people that were asymptomatic, it's more likely that it's probably somewhere between 0.2 and 0.6. Still serious, still a big deal, but also we need to keep in mind that if this one is 2.88, then there's probably a ton of asymptomatic people in Alabama that already have the virus that we just don't know about it yet. All right, so let's go ahead and look at some of the numbers. You can see here is the new cases for the state of Alabama. So these are new daily cases, and you can see there is a pretty big increase near the end of that chart. We had a really big day today. There was a really big jump in cases today. Uh, we've had record-setting days uh, all within the past 10 days of new cases. And so really, really huge spikes going on for new cases in the state of Alabama, which comes as no surprise if you've been watching the news. But as we've been doing every week, we're going to do a seven-day comparison and we're going to do a comparison, look at the average daily cases since the shutdown officially ended. So our seven-day averages for this week on new cases, 760, our previous seven-day average, so the week before, 530. That is an increase of 230 new cases per day in one week. That's a lot of new cases. But as I've said before, that increase in cases is not necessarily a bad thing. Because that increase in cases is also what's allowing our fatality rate to dip. Now, obviously, the ideal scenario, if we lived in a perfect world, is we would have zero cases and we would never have any cases. And, you know, if China had managed this thing properly, that probably would have been a reality. But we know that that's not really 
feasible. That's not really realistic now. And, and unfortunately, this thing, of course, is here and it is uh, going through our population. And so because of that, the more tests we have and the more people we know actually have it and, and didn't die, that's something that's going to push that fatality rate down. And so having more confirmed cases is actually a good thing and probably as indicative of more robust testing than anything else. Now, the 28-day average is really interesting because we're going to give the 28-day average because 28 days ago is when the shutdown officially ended. Um, now, like I said, I think that people were probably out and about more or less back to their normal lives about two weeks, maybe even a little bit longer before then. But we'll go with the official one just to measure the effectiveness of the shutdown because people not listening to it should also be included as a factor in how effective a shutdown is. So looking at the 28-day average for cases, we have 518 in this previous 28-day period, the one that we're in now. The one before it, the 28 days before the shutdown officially ended, the daily average was 267. So that's a substantial increase. That is an increase of 251 new cases per day. So that's not chump change. And by the way, this is to be expected. Once you open things back up, once you allow people to return to normal activity, of course the virus is going to spread. We knew that going in. So that is an increase. The question is not, did we increase the number of confirmed cases? Did we increase the level of infection? The question is, what harm did it do to society? What are our hospitalization rates? What are our death rates? Those are the more important numbers. Not saying cases is irrelevant. It helps us measure and helps us prepare for those other two numbers. But ultimately, the final measuring of this should be your fatalities and your hospitalizations and not your overall numbers. Because if we have a whole bunch of people infected that survive it, that's a really, really good thing. So let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the testing that's going on, because this is part of the reason that those cases have gone up. You'll see that testing has become much more steady and stable. We have a couple of really big spikes, which is good. We have a couple of really big spikes in the past couple weeks. But what's different is, because you'll look at some of the earlier times in this chart, that there's an awful lot of blank spaces. We'll go sometimes a day or two without having hardly any new test or no test at all. And that's really not something that has happened in the more recent weeks. And so testing has gotten better, uh, although it's not as much better as you might think looking at the graph, because if you're going by daily averages, the seven-day average for this week was 6,023, or sorry, 6,238. And then the previous seven-day average the week before was 6,209. So this week to, to last week, that's an increase of 29, 29 new people tested per day. That's fine. That's all well and good. But it's also important to note that it's not a gigantic leap or anything. So for the past two weeks, our testing has remained more or less stable. There's been very little change in it. There's been a little uptick. I mean, 29 people more a day does add up over time. So it's not like it's completely insignificant, but basically we're neck and neck with, with last week. However, if you're looking at the 28-day averages on testing, our 28-day average is 5,328, and our previous 28-day average is 5,002. So again, not like massive record-breaking numbers or anything, but an increase of 326 more people this month than last month 
Okay, that's a significant difference. That is a, a pretty substantial improvement in the level of testing that we're having right now. Let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. So if you'll look at hospitalizations here, you can see that near the... This one's more stable than the others. But if you look at hospitalizations, you'll see that there was a pretty big lead-up last week, and then there's been a bit of a drop-off this week. And our cases continue to go up, all while our hospitalizations are actually in sort of a decline overall. Our overall average is on a downward trajectory, which is really good because that also suggests and means that a lot of the people that are getting the virus and testing positive are typically going to be younger, healthier people that are not going to be as set upon by this thing. Now, is it going to suck? Sure. I, I have a friend that's in her 20s that she's actually a few years younger than me that went through this, and she said it was awful on her. Uh, I mean, just like the flu, you, there's very little chance that you're going to die from it, but it seriously sucks to have it. Like, it, it's not fun. It's not a good time. There's no question about that. But if it's not going to kill you, then really this is not something to shut down the whole of society for. And so for the average younger person that is at very low risk for this thing, that's really good. It, they're not even being hospitalized in large rates. And of course, hospitalization was the goal of the shutdowns in the first place is to try to keep the medical system from being overwhelmed. So when it comes to hospitalizations, the seven-day average for this week that we're in now we are averaging 30 new people hospitalized per day. And previously, we were uh, looking at a seven-day average of 34 hospitalizations per day. So hospitalizations is actually on the decline. We're seeing four less people hospitalized this week than last week. Now, that may be really significant if you remember the same update that we did last week where hospitalizations was a little bit of an area of concern because they had increased by three, went from 31 to 34. And so because there was an increase, I was, you know, I was a little nervous. I was saying, okay, guys, you know, this isn't something to panic about right now. It's not something that's wildly out of the norm and going to overwhelm the healthcare system, but it's something we need to keep an eye on because if it keeps going in an upward trajectory like that, that could spell trouble. Except now this week, We've actually gone down by more than we increased last week, so we're actually declining at a faster rate than we were increasing last week. Just by one less person a day, but that does matter. So the fact that we have now decreased and are not just in a downward trajectory, but a faster one than we were in last week when it came to our increases on hospitals, that's a really, really good sign, and it especially should be, should be so for people in the river region that were worried about our medical staff and, and medical resources being overtaxed by the increases, well, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Another thing that's important to note about this, when it comes to uh, things like Birmingham and over in Lee County, Opelika, their hospital, Tuscaloosa, you see, one of the advantages of Montgomery going through its, its spike late is the fact that all of those nearby places now have plenty of resources. Because you may look at Jefferson County and its surrounding counties and realize that their hospitals aren't getting very much hospitalizations of COVID-19 at all. They already went through this. They already had their big increase. 
And so because of that, they've got plenty of leftover excess medical resources that can be used for people in the river region. And by the way, that's a very common practice between Montgomery and Birmingham. Anybody that's lived here for any amount of time knows this. We're only about an hour away from each other. And so anytime there is something that is very serious, something that the Montgomery facilities cannot handle, they outsource to Birmingham. This has been a very common practice in the medical community for at least as long as I've been alive, my 31 years here on earth, that, that I remember living in this area. That's certainly been true ever since then. It will continue to be true. But that's even better when you consider that the entirety of the state of Alabama is not going through the, uh, you know, the, the eye of the storm all at once. The fact that it's staggered and the fact that Alabama is going through this, uh, sorry, central Alabama is going through this now and North Alabama has already gone through it and had time to catch its breath and recover and pick up the slack. That's something that's really, really good for the state as well. I understand that people, because they were reading it without context and knowing that, you know, Birmingham was going to be there and able to help and that hospitals already operate, uh, Montgomery's hospital already operates on like an 80 to 85% occupancy rate at a normal day. Uh, they read some of the headlines and got super freaked out, not realizing that it was, you know, really not that gigantic of an increase. And so our hospitalizations are headed in the right direction. And if you look at the the 28-day average, you look at the monthly average, so pre-shutdown and post-shutdown. So uh, this 28-day average, the one that we're in right now since the shutdown has ended, we're averaging... Same as our seven-day average, actually, 30. We're averaging 30 hospitalizations per day. What were we averaging during the shutdown? 28. So we have actually gone up a little bit in hospitalizations, but just by two, two a day. That's more than manageable. Frankly, it's, it's something that's so small, I doubt that it's having an impact anywhere else in the state. Like I said, Montgomery's a bit of a hot zone now, so we're definitely seeing the impact in our hospitals and our medical facilities, not to a point that where we're in any danger, really. But looking at it and understanding that and, and looking that it's only two more people per day, it really does lead you to question whether or not the shutdowns, whose stated purpose was to ensure that the hospitals had enough room and resources if the mandatory government shutdown, I'm not saying people just quarantining on their own because there's very good evidence that people were doing that anyway and would have done that anyway. But when it comes to the government-mandated shutdown, it does not appear that when it comes to hospitalizations, it made much of an impact at all. And this has also been true in studies and, and looking at the statistics of other states around the country that had no shutdown whatsoever, that they fared about the same as their neighbors in neighboring states around them that did have shutdowns. And so the effectiveness of the shutdowns is really... There's really no evidence for it so far as I've seen. I've seen nothing compelling that shows that shutdowns actually made a significant impact. And again, I'm not talking about shutdowns in the terms of people deciding, okay, we're going to stay at home by ourselves of our own volition. I'm talking about shutdowns when it comes to people actually uh, mandating that the government shut down a state or a city. And then let's go ahead and look at deaths. So if you look here, these are the COVID-19 deaths in the state of Alabama, and you'll notice that there's been a pretty sharp 
decline in those as well. Having what I've not seen in a while over the past uh, couple weeks, we've even had days where there were zero deaths, which is super, super encouraging. And that was something that we had not seen in a while, but no deaths uh, in some of the days this week. We actually did have a pretty substantial day today that we're on. Uh, it's a little above average or a little above what we had gotten accustomed to seeing. But even so, it looks like deaths are on the decline as well, and that holds true when you're looking at the other stats. The seven-day average for coronavirus deaths is 7.3 for this week. Last week, 14.1. So we cut it in about half. Like I said, last week's death rate, a little bit alarming. Not too alarming if you look at it in the overall context of, of the trajectory and how everything had been going. But if you're looking at it from this angle, we cut it in half in about a week. That's really, really good news. And if you're looking at the 28-day averages, in other words, pre-shutdown, post-shutdown ending, the 28-day average since the shutdown has ended has been 9.7. The 28-day average while the shutdown was still going on, 11.9. So since the shutdown ended, again, because we've been looking at these stats for a while and every single time it comes back that there were more people dying of this disease during the shutdown than after the shutdown ended, we have actually decreased the death rate since the shutdown ended by a little over two people per day. And so I, I really don't see how anybody can look at this data and assert that the shutdown, the government-mandated shutdown, was necessary. I mean, frankly, looking at it, I think that the only conclusion that a person could see in this is that we grossly overreacted. Now, granted, it's better to overreact than underreact, but I'm just saying, based on the numbers, it looks like we may have gone a little bit overboard and done a little more damage than we absolutely had to when it comes to this level of overreaction. So I've heard a lot of people, because of this, talk about whether or not we should have waited to do the lockdown. Because a lot of people just here in Montgomery have been asking me, or I've heard it being talked about amongst others, well, maybe what we should have done is we should have waited for the shutdown because it just started getting really bad. And I'm going to give you both sides of this argument. Uh, the case for saying, no, we shouldn't have waited is, well, we're seeing the spike now because we reopened and the fact that we waited wouldn't have made a difference. I don't think that's true. And the reason that I don't think that's true is because, like I said, Mobile and Birmingham, they all saw spikes much earlier than us. Maybe, maybe, because Birmingham started a little bit earlier than us. I mean, like right when this thing started really snowballing. Maybe you could make the case that with Birmingham, that the reason that that, that doesn't really count is because it started spreading before everybody really became aware of it and really started battening down the hatches. Okay, maybe I can buy that argument. That's not completely far-fetched or unreasonable. But the thing that throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing is that, like, I don't know, about two, two and a half weeks later, Mobile starts going through this. And that was after everybody knew about it and after everybody was starting to, to close things down. And, and yet, even so, and, and Mobile being a 
a port town that has a lot of travelers, still nothing going. And they still had their spike about that time. And so it would be very difficult looking at other cities surrounding Montgomery, looking around at other cities with similar cultures, uh, with similar demographics, and saying, oh, well, you know, we definitely should have, uh, we definitely should have stayed shut down then, and we, we should stay shut down now, or, or you know, we, we sh- when we did shut down, that was what kept us from seeing this giant spike in cases. Well, there are other cities that did exactly the same thing, and they did see a big spike in cases even during their shutdown. And so I find it hard to buy that argument. So the case for yes, that we should have shut or we should have waited to shut down. In other words, Montgomery should have stayed open. People should have still been going to work. And then all of a sudden, when this spike did hit about two and a half, three weeks ago, when it started getting really bad, that's when we should have shut down. This is a much more compelling argument for a number of reasons. So first of all, it, the, the main thing is that we would have allowed the economy to keep going for a while because the economy would have not suffered nearly as badly if we had been able to keep going. And then when things did start getting really hairy, then all of a sudden we started sounding the alarm and saying, all right, everybody back in your homes, batten down the hatches. Now I'm not a fan of government mandating shutdowns regardless, but if one were going to be done, and that were a foregone conclusion, I agree that waiting and holding off until there was legitimate reason to believe that this thing was going to be uh, really bad here in the next few weeks and seeing our numbers increase so dramatically, that would have been the better option. I'm not a big fan of, really in any circumstance, a one-size-fits-all measure. And with Governor Ivey's orders in the state of Alabama, that's what was issued, a a one-size-fits-all order. That Montgomery, who at the time was having virtually no cases, had had to abide by exactly the same rules as Birmingham, which was an absolute hotbed. And now the same rule applies. Montgomery, which is now the hotbed, has exactly the same rules as Birmingham, which does not. This is why from the very beginning I advocated for local people making those decisions. Granted, I'd probably rather have Governor Ivey at the helm of my ship than I would Mayor Reed, and and this week is a great testament to why. But nonetheless, I do think that it makes more sense for local people to be able to do this. It gives the individual places around the state a lot more autonomy when it comes to this. And originally, it looked like that was the direction Governor Ivey was going to go. And then the second she felt any political pressure whatsoever, went ahead and decided to go ahead and and do the full-on shutdown. But anyway, uh, so that's essentially the case for, yes, we should have waited and just uh, j- delayed the shutdown until right about now. But the thing that I think may have made it even more effective is if people had not been quarantined. In other words, if people around the river region had not been quarantined and had been out and been able to do things more or less the way that they normally would have and had not been, you know, basically under house arrest for two months, then they would be a lot more willing to and a lot more apt to stay home now when it's more important for them to be cautious. See, I think that was the danger in this all along. Because we were quarantining when we didn't really have a reason to, we all got stir-crazy, and, and I'm including myself in that. I And I look at the stats every single day, I know, but uh, I pay way more attention to this than the average person 
And even I started getting stir crazy and started to wonder why this was taking place, why uh, we were having to abide by these rules, despite the fact that all the people around us were seemingly fine. And so I think that that would have made a big psychological difference. I don't think you can really quantify that per se, but if people around the river region had not been having to quarantine and had been more or less doing things the way that they normally would have, then all of a sudden when things started getting hairy and everybody shouted out, all right, it looks like it's getting bad. Everybody batten down the hatches and hide in your homes. They'd probably be a lot more willing to do that if that had been the way this whole thing played out. But uh, ultimately, I think that both positions are wrong. I think both positions are wrong because both of them, you may recall that I said when I was going over my analysis there, that they are both essentially predicated on the idea that a shutdown had to happen. And if you're going from the hypothetical of a shutdown had to happen, there had to be a shutdown either then or now, then, yeah, I think it makes a lot more sense to wait for when the virus is actually really getting around and really uh, infecting people and, and becomes more of a threat. I think it makes far more sense to quarantine then than when it's not a threat. I mean, that's just common sense. But the reason I think that both of those are incorrect is because a government-mandated shutdown should have never been put into position in the first place. And they also are predicated on asking the wrong question. The question is not what can prevent more people from getting the coronavirus. The question is which one would have caused less deaths. And in this case, I don't think you could make the case that either one would have caused less deaths. Now, like I said, our deaths after the shutdown ended have actually been less than before the shutdown ended. I don't think that's because the shutdown was there. I don't think the shutdown caused more people to die. I mean, there's no reason to believe that that is the case. It may have caused more people to die in other ways, like you could have seen an increase in domestic violence, suicides, that kind of thing. Uh, that may be the case. But as far as the coronavirus killing people itself, I don't think that you can look at the data right now and make the case that it really did anything to help that out. And so I think the question of when we should have had the shutdown is actually the wrong question because the question that we should be asking is, well, since it doesn't seem as though these government mandated shutdowns saved even one life, why the heck would we then enact it? Especially when you consider all the economic damage that it did and, and the kind of undue burden that it placed on society as a whole. So I guess the best way to summarize this whole thing is yes, Montgomery is a hot zone. Yes, if you are living in the river region, if you're in Prattville or Millbrook or uh, Wetumpka or uh, any of these surrounding areas that we talk about all the time, be extra cautious. That's good advice. This is the time where you need to be sanitizing. I mean, you need to do this anyway, but washing your hands a lot, use hand sanitizer if you can't get near a, a place to wash your hands, maybe be a little extra cautious, stay in the house unless you absolutely need to leave. I think that caution absolutely makes sense at this time. But the general sentiment, the general sentiment that's kind of out there that is causing people to really not be as cautious as they probably should be, at least in this area, because this area is right now kind of a hot zone. That general sentiment that this whole thing was overblown and they were making far too big a deal out of it, I think if you look at the numbers, any objective person would say, yeah, they kind of did. They kind of did blow it way out of proportion. And so that would 
sort of be the, the way that I look at it. All right, so I've got to go ahead and jump to a break because we have a really special treat for you, and uh, he's really, really good, an expert in constitutional law. He's been on the show before, Matt Clark of the Foundation for Moral Law. He is coming up in just a minute, and we are going to sort through all of the action that happened in the Supreme Court this week, so stay tuned. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Now, uh, one of the things that has happened for a long time here on the show is uh, whenever something big happens in the Supreme Court, we typically wind up getting this guy on here. He's uh, named Matt Clark. He's a buddy of mine, uh, somebody that's been a friend of the program many, many times. Uh, So without further ado, Matt Clark of the Foundation for Moral Law. Welcome on to the program, Matt. Good to be with you. Howdy, Caleb. Thanks for having me. It's good uh, being with you today, as always. Thanks for having me on. I got to say, man, you're making me look bad because normally when I have these, uh, ever since the uh, corona apocalypse set upon us, whenever I interview people, they're like at their home and sweats and everything. And so I look really good on screen compared to that. And you, you know, <laughs> dressed to the nines, putting me to shame over here. Well, thanks. I, I, I would have dressed uh, better if... Uh, I, I don't know. I've been on the uh, on the show earlier today. This is uh, th- this is kind of the outfit that you pull out when it technically satisfies uh, the the requirements for a lawyer, uh, but you're not really planning on being anywhere, and it's kind of uh, an easier day. Well, don't worry. I've already set the standard on dress real low, so we should be okay on that. Uh, so when it comes to the Supreme Court, and we do tend to have you on here only uh, when you know the, this stuff comes down, usually in the middle of the year, about the time of year that it is now, um, it's amazing to me that the other day when I was looking at this, I think that, that I and a lot of people around me, and I know that he tried to give like sort of an originalist paying homage to that idea, but with a six to three decision on this and with Neil Gorsuch of all people who for most conservatives and and you and I talked about him when he was first appointed, uh, has been someone that has been seen as like the reincarnation of Antonin Scalia. I think that we were watching this and going, Okay, well, I don't think Antonin Scalia would have come to this conclusion when it comes to the case. So if you could give us a little background on the case and, and how Neil Gorsuch, of all people, wound up siding with Justice Roberts and the, the liberal justices. Sure. Um, well, you know, w- w- one of the last questions that you asked is something that I'm still trying to figure out, which is how in the world did you, Neil Gorsuch, come to this particular uh, conclusion? But, you know, the, the, but to, to the best extent I can explain it. So what, what happened in uh, these cases, it, it was actually a combination of uh, three cases, two of which involved um, people being fired apparently just because they were gay. Uh, mm-hmm. And then another case arising out of Michigan, uh, there was a Christian funeral home owner um, who had been running uh, the family business for, for many years, running uh, several sets of funeral homes. And one day his funeral director, who was a man, uh, came to him and said, hey, I'm coming out as a woman. I'm transgender. So um, I want to start coming to work uh, according to the women's dress code and not the men. And, you know, the funeral homeowner said, all right, I'm sorry, I can't allow that. And uh, she was I'm sorry, he was fired because of that. Now, all three of these people wound up bringing lawsuits under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which does not despite Congress's many, many, many attempts to amend the statute, does not prohibit discrimination in the workplace on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. But what it does prohibit is 
discrimination on the basis of sex or because of sex. Um, you know, back in 1964, when this law was passed, what it really was trying to do was trying to eliminate sexism in the workplace and trying to give women an equal footing with men. That's all it was really designed to do. But uh, there, the, the theory that was pursued in this case, it, it's, it's relatively new. It, it only started arising around 2017 or so, was the argument was that whenever you discriminate against a transgender or homosexual person, you are necessarily uh, discriminating against them on the basis of sex because their, you know, their, their sexuality and their gender identity is you know, inseparably bound up with their sex. So that's kind of how the argument went. Um, it, it was, it, you know, it struck me as pretty absurd and same thing with uh, Justices Alito, Thomas and Kavanaugh because mm -hmm. in 1964, when this law was passed, um, homosexuality was criminalized uh, in 49 out of 50 states and the District of Columbia. Right. And gender identity was diagnosed by the DSM as a mental disorder. You know, that only changed recently as well. So, right. And I might add with no explanation, they just basically said, well, it's not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we all know what's going on. They're, they're, they're caving to the politically correct crowd. Um, but, you know, they didn't really give a reason explanation for why it's not a uh, mental disorder anymore. Uh, but anyway, the case came up to all three cases wound up coming up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, my wife and I and our senior counsel here at the foundation, John Eismo, we all filed a brief on behalf of the Christian Christian funeral home owner uh, in amicus brief supporting him. And, you know, we tried to make the argument pretty plainly to the court that in 1964, nobody in their right mind thought that prohibiting um, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex applied in any way to homosexuality or to gender identity. Right. Um, and we also tried to bring up the religious freedom implications, you know, for instance, in this, in the case of the Christian funeral homeowner, like if you blow the door wide open to that, what about this guy's religious freedom? It's like, look, this is a, uh, is a small business, it's a family business under controlling cases like Hobby Lobby. Um, you know, the free exercise clause and, and the religious freedom restoration act apply to me too. So, you know, I have the right to say no to this. And, uh, we tried to talk a lot about just, you know, all the problems that were going to come up if the court got this wrong. Well, uh, you know, I, I listened to oral argument. I was actually in D.C. at the Supreme Court. Alliance Defending Freedom invited us up, and right. I was able to take that up. And, and at oral argument, John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch were being pretty hard on the attorneys for the LGBT crowd and pretty light on you know, the attorneys for our side. But Gorsuch did ask one question. He, he, he didn't really press his theory hard in the oral argument. He just kind of threw the question out to the attorneys on our side asking, hey, maybe you can help me with this. Um, how would you respond to the argument that, uh, you know, discriminating against uh, a gay or transgender person is the same as uh, discriminating on the basis of sex? So at that point, some people started to get a little troubled because, uh, you know, Gorsuch has really tried to make himself out to be a very staunch textualist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he threw that question out there and it, it did get a lot of people thinking, maybe we have a problem with, uh, with, with Gorsuch. And it, it turned out that, that was quite right. Um, when, when, when the court took the case under advisement, it still seemed to me like Gorsuch was squarely in our corner and he was just trying to ask that question as an attempt to, you know, be fair to both sides sure. and, and ask both sides hard questions if he could. But Which is something a good justice should do, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, and, and for instance, even uh, Justice Sotomayor, who's one of the more outspoken liberals on the court, she was grilling, um, you know, the questions for uh, the, the she, she was grilling the attorney for the plaintiffs, you know, asking them, you know, all right, let's get down. What happens with things like shared bathrooms if you roll your way? You know, mm-hmm. don't, I'm not going to let you off the hook. Talk to me. What happens here? Right. But then she she had no problem going along with the majority opinion. So, um, yeah, the questions they ask at oral argument can be quite misleading. Right. Uh, but but anyways, um, yeah, Gorsuch, you know, he, he really when he wrote the majority opinion in this case, he really did a he tried to appear like he was following in Justice Scalia's footsteps. Um, you know, once he bought the principle that, you know, any time that you discriminate on, you know, against a gay or transgender person, you are necessarily discriminating uh, on the basis of sex. It was all over for him. And so hmm. he, he even pointed out, uh, he says, you know, there, there have been objections that nobody would have really thought about this application back then. But you know, trying to make himself out to be a textualist, somebody who is all about what the statute says as opposed to its purpose. Um, he said, look, if Congress has a problem with this law, they can go back and amend it. OK, but my job is to apply the law that's written. And in this case, that demands this particular outcome. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I have a hard time buying that argument for a couple of reasons. It, first of all, it seems it just reeks of even though, like you said, it sort of is caked into the language that would tickle a conservative's ears, talking about originalism, textualism. It has all the trappings of a conservative idea, but at its core is folly, at least based on my understanding of it. And and the reason I bring you on is because you understand these things more than I do. Uh, But it seems as though there's several reasons why that would be ridiculous, because Gorsuch himself actually argues in this opinion that biological gender is a real thing. And so if he's acknowledging that biological gender is a real thing and acknowledging that there are differences between men and women, then discriminating against somebody, whether you think it's right or not, based upon their sexual preferences or sexual desires would absolutely be appropriate when you consider that there are some actions that are appropriate for men and not for women as a basis of their biological gender. The first example that I thought of, and I want to kind of bounce this off of you. Um, would we say that it would be inappropriate, for example, for, let's say, a construction company? Uh, they're outside in the sun all day. They're only around other employees of the company. They're not really, you know, around the public. Um, so, you know, they're kind of in an enclosed space. However, uh, a lot of the men that work for the construction company work shirtless because that's most comfortable for them. But the company has a policy that women cannot do the same thing because that would be indecent. Well, if you're following the logic of this decision, that would absolutely, because if they're saying that, uh, you know, if you're if one action is not OK for a man, but OK for a woman or vice versa, then that would be a Title seven uh, violation. According mm-hmm. to this logic, that would be inappropriate. You know, th- th- that's a very good hypothetical. I think you're I think you're definitely onto something. Um, we uh, it, you know, actually last year uh, th- there was you know, a case like that at the Supreme Court mm-hmm. that uh, we, we try to jump in on and, and push back against something like that. Uh, There's the, the, a group of um, uh, feminists in New Hampshire that brought a suit saying that requiring women to wear tops but not men is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, 
and what it the, the New Hampshire Supreme Court only in a three to two decision. So it was very close, but they upheld the ordinance. And then they asked the Supreme Court to take it. So we actually filed a brief opposing it. Unfortunately, the court turned it down. But I think you hit the nail on the head is that um, and the U.S. Supreme Court said this. It was in a 2001 decision, I believe. Um, I think the, the, the petitioner's name was Nugen, N-Y-U-G-E-N. I, I can't remember uh, the rest of the case name. But the, the court said, you know, principles like this, like the Equal Protection Clause and Title VII, they do not prohibit people from noting what are real differences between the sexes. Right. You know, they just, you know, they, they just don't because if, you know, if we were to go that far, then we would really destroy the concept of sex entirely and engage in the fiction that, you know, the sexes are completely alike in every way. And it's just not true. Right. And this has been my big question about it, because what you're talking about is accurate. And, and what I was trying to stab at is that that would technically be a discrimination of an action or a choice in the case of either a man being attracted to other men and pursuing them romantically or in the, the hypothetical that I gave a man taking a shirt off where it's not appropriate for a woman to. Um, but what I think is, is the bigger, uh, thing that I kind of wanted to, um, dive into, which I think even contradicts other federal law. We're not even talking constitutional differences or, or sort of, uh, larger, more grandiose moral differences. Uh, wouldn't this decision also kind of negate title nine? Because the whole point of title nine is that you have to have equal opportunity for men and women and you have separate leagues of male and female athletes, but um, like based on this decision, you could argue that allowing a man to play on a woman's team, but, but not on a, or allowing a man to play on a man's team, but not play on a woman's team would also be a violation. So now does title seven cancel out title nine? Like there's all kinds of unintended consequences that come from this decision. You know, I'm not sure who I'm talking to right now, whether it's Caleb Colquitt or justice Alito. Because, uh, <laughs> that is high praise. <laughs> no, you know, Alito said the exact same thing in his dissent, and I think both of you are spot on. I actually um, didn't read that. I'm surprised that we came to the same thing without me even <laughs> having heard that. But but yeah, go ahead. Uh, Alito's dissent was fantastic. I mean, you know, number one, he, he pointed out that uh, th this was, you know, not what Justice Scalia would have done. He uh, he, he said, you know, the, the, the court's opinion flies under the flag of textualism, but it's really more like a pirate ship because it's flying under one flag, but it's actually, uh, you know, a, a, a philosophy of judicial interpretation that Justice Scalia would have abhorred. It's updating the statute according to your preferences. That's what right. he really did. Um, but yeah, at, at the end though, he brought out the, the parade of horribles and he, you know, he, he brought up, you know, women's force specifically. I don't think he specifically mentioned title nine, but you know, the, the consequences are, are the same. Um, and, and that's going to be a big question. There are a lot of cases right now, um, around the country where, uh, transgender activists have been, um, suing under title nine, trying to abolish, uh, the differences between, um, between the sexes when it comes to things like, um, you know, locker rooms and bathrooms and showers and, you know, in, in public schools. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's terrifying because these are our kids that, you know, the left wants to subject to their social experiments that are very harmful and they're hijacking law in order to get there. Um, so while at the end of the day, while, uh, Monday's decision did not directly affect Title IX. It looks like the principle is probably going to apply in the same way unless clever lawyers can find a way to distinguish the two. So we're, we're on very uh, scary terrain right here. 
Yeah, certainly. And uh, actually, that kind of perfectly hedgeways into because since we are talking about the law of unintended consequences, uh, this is something that I know is of great concern to you, uh, great concern to the foundation and, and great concern to me and my audience is uh, what kind of ramifications does this have for religious liberty? Because I have heard and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there is some legal standing and precedent that would at least lead us to believe that there may be some exceptions for religious organizations that are overtly religious, like a church, for example, uh, under even under Title VII and the understanding that we had before 48 hours ago when it was understood that on the basis of sex meant whether you're a man or a woman, that the, that the state could not obligate a church, for example, that believes that women preachers are not something that is biblically sound, it couldn't obligate them to hire a female preacher. Uh, and so there was a little bit of leeway given to overtly religious uh, organizations, but A, is that going to go away for actual churches and religious institutions? And B, um, does that... I guess there's probably a lesser protection there, but does that would that also extend to somewhat secular religious organizations like a Catholic hospital, something like that? Yeah, the, the, those are those are fantastic questions, and I think um, that that's really what's on everybody's mind right now. Because on the one hand, it's it's one thing to tolerate evil, you know, if 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 uh, you know people are doing terrible things mm -hmm. and we hate it. We'd rather that they not do it. But then when they try to rope us into it and you say, I'm a Christian, I can't be part of this. Do you have, you know, any way to put a shield up and say, Hey, even if y'all can, you know, get away with doing that, I get an exception because I'm religious. Uh, so I think, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, the technical answer is it's an open question. Um, <laughs> it's, because as you, as Monday's decision shows, you can never underestimate the ability of a court to look at a very plainly written statute with a very obvious meaning and completely butcher it if that's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes. Uh, so churches and um, and religious entities that are not necessarily churches, I think they do have a few lines of defense remaining. And, and to Justice Gorsuch's credit, he pointed it out, and he seemed to be indicating that you know, he thought these laws should apply and get, you know, religious institutions out of it. Uh, he, he had to stop short of saying that, but he was giving very strong hints that he thought, all right, even if everybody else has to comply with this garbage, if you have a religious objection, uh, it's different. But um, one exception is called the ministerial exception. This is not based on a federal statute. It's based on the Constitution itself. And um, the, the Supreme Court recognized it in 2012. And, and what it essentially holds is that if the government comes along and tells a church or a religious organization that um, when they're choosing their ministers, they have to comply with you know some of these qualifications, then they're not only prohibiting the free exercise of religion for that church or religious organization, but they're also kind of establishing a religion as well because they're telling them how they have to do things. So it's one of those rare instances where right, it's basically co-opting doctrine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the Supreme Court has recognized that and said, all right, if you are a minister of your faith, then you're exempted from this. But here's the here's here's the tricky part. The question then becomes, who is a minister? Um, and the Supreme Court has not really answered that yet. It's th th there's one case that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks in front of the Supreme Court that wrestles with that right now um, involving uh, involving teachers at a Catholic school. Um, I, I think it's safe to presume if you are. Uh, on staff, say, you know, as a preacher, pastor, priest, you know, whatever your job is where, you know, it's your primary job to, you know, administer the sacraments, preach the word, things like that, you're probably safe. Um, right. 
it gets hairier when if you're on staff and you're performing things that might not be as religious in nature like if you're a janitor or a facilities manager or something like that that's where it gets a little hairy uh so here at the foundation for moral law we've actually jumped in on those cases and we've taken the position that you're, you're right to recognize a ministerial exception but you need to defer to that organization's um definition of what a minister is because otherwise you're starting to tell you know these groups what their religion is or is not and you can't do that um so we're hoping the supreme court goes along with us but uh yeah that, that, that remains to be seen um there are also there's also the religious freedom restoration act uh which makes life a lot harder on the government when it tries to crack down on people uh for not going along with a government mandate that violates their religious beliefs so justice gorsuch he indicated that that law you know if if um uh if it came into play would probably supersede title seven it probably would but it's still technically an open question so right. there is some good news for uh churches religious organizations um and uh and and people like that uh but it's, it still remains to see how all this is going to play out okay well uh, I kind of wanted to, because that gets into a lot of the, the federal law and, and a little bit in case law and, and just mm -hmm. understanding that. Uh, I'd like to, for a second, and I know that this is an area that interests you as well, uh, broaden our scope a little bit and talk to what, what I was actually talking about Monday on my show. The bigger question, which is, and I don't know uh, exactly how much of an opinion you can give on this, I'm not sure. Um, I think that what is being somewhat neglected in this discussion is talking about the greater underlying principles here, which is even the idea, if you go back to the understanding of a business is not allowed to discriminate based on the basis of sex or race or whatever else, that there is a question of, relig of uh, not religious freedom, but freedom of association and economic freedom when you tell a person that their property, which in this case is a business, you are not allowed to do with your property what you want. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that is a threshold issue. And because uh, people are um, too scared to go there, a lot of the times I don't think it gets discussed because. Um, right, because and, and I don't mean to interrupt, but the first thing that people assume when you say that, and I know that because I've had the, these arrows thrown at me as well. Uh, the first thing I'll say is, oh, so you just want to be able to fire black people. It's like, well, no, I don't want yeah. the black people fired. But I think that as horrible and bigoted as it would be for someone to do that, I think they've got the liberty to make that decision if it's their business. And I also have the, the freedom to never go there again. But, you know. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I agree with you on that. So, you know, not necessarily as, as a legal matter, but as a policy matter, I, I agree. I'm a big fan of guys like Milton Friedman and, uh, you know, people like that. Um, and, and, and so coming back to the threshold questions of, you know, should the government really be telling people what and what not to do with their business? I think the, the answer is, um, it, it's, it's largely no, it shouldn't. Uh, and, you know, in, in today's, you know, today's culture, especially, um, I mean, look at what's going on around the country right now. There, there's a lot of outrage over, you know, the killings of, um, uh, you know, George Floyd and uh, Ahmed Aubrey and, and people like that. And rightfully so. I'm, I'm furious sure. about it, too. Um, yeah. But, you know, people are taking this to, you know, to, to such extremes that, look, if, if, if anybody nowadays fired, you know, somebody for being black, 
you know, not only would there be an economic boycott of it, which I would all be in favor for, by the way, sure. I would join that boycott for sure. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, with, with the culture being where it is, that, that, that place would not only be boycotted and uh, run out of business, would probably burn down as well, uh, which, you know, I'm not in favor of. But right, of course, today. but, like, if nothing else, that uh, it does demonstrate that our society has moved past a place of just tolerating that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree completely. I mean, you know, if, you know, if, if somebody wants to be, you know, as stupid and bigoted as to buy or, you know, somebody like that, you know, I, I think, um, I think the free market would, uh, you know, run that business owner out of business faster than, you know, a government lawsuit could. <laughs> and sure. I'd, I'd be in favor of that for sure. Um, so, but no, I, I agree. It, it does get to be a lot more problematic when, you know, the government keeps coming in and telling people, you know, what they have to do with, you know, with their business. Um, you know, you go back to the the parable of um, the vineyard owner, and and you know, at the end of the day, you know, everybody comes up to get paid, and the owner, um, you know, gives the people that worked one hour the same wages as he did for uh, everybody who worked the the entire uh, the entire day, and the guys who worked longer got mad, and you know, the owner says, "Isn't it my right to do?" with my own, what I wish, I haven't done you any wrong. We had an agreement. You had an agreement to work for this much. So take what's yours and go, you know? So in the same way here, I think it's. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, for fans of the show, they'll know what I'm talking about when I say this, uh, bringing that up in this contest, uh, context just gave me a great idea for my next, um, uh, social justice warrior Bible segment. I'm totally (laughs) going to do that now, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like it's the person's to do with what they want. Nowadays, it feels like, especially in America, if that parable took place in real time here in America, that there would be a lawsuit filed. Yep. Yeah, you got that right for sure. Um, so, but, but but you're right. I mean, you, you have to you have to come back to things like you know uh, ec- you know economic liberty. I, I think the government has a um, you know has has a only a very minor role in in regulating that stuff. And and I, and I have to ask too. Um, you know, if stuff like this is going to, uh, if stuff like this is going to happen, I, I think it should be happening more at the state level than at the feds. Um, mm. the, I think the 14th amendment does give the the federal government jurisdiction to prohibit discriminatory practices at the, you know, within the state governments, um, because the 14th amendment, you know, says no state shall do. And then the, 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 there's a whole list of things that a state can't do. Right. But, it, it's it's a step beyond that to say that the federal government has jurisdiction over um uh you know over private commercial affairs uh it it, it doesn't so and i've looked at the case law here title seven when it comes to regulating private businesses its power is supposedly based on the commerce clause and as you know very well that that clause has probably been abused worse than any other provision in the constitution to expand the power of the federal government so um right it's become the magical legal macguffin that the left trots out whenever they want to do something yeah yeah that's a good way to put it so i don't know it does everything yeah (laughs) yeah exactly you know i i have look you know, just because I, you know, I question the constitutionality of Title Seven to begin with, doesn't mean that I'm going to hop on board uh, a constitutional challenge to take the whole thing down. I have no interest in doing that at all. Sure. But, um, but, uh, but, but, but we should be coming back to asking questions of, you know, as a threshold matter, should the government be coming in and, you know, 
telling businesses what they can and can't do because eventually if you get to the point where you do it too much you're going to crush them and you're going to kill them you know and and especially uh in times where you know like where we are right now with the coronavirus throwing one heck of a curveball at the economy you don't need to be crippling with businesses with uh lots of rules you need to be able to set them free to do their thing and if if they do business well then they'll they'll thrive because customers are going to come um, and if they're being stupid, like, you know, not hiring black people because they're black, they're going to go out of business very fast. Right. And one thing that I actually did want to, uh, to bring up and, and sort of bounce off of you, uh, because I think that the average person, and I, I know a little bit more about it. I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I know a little bit more about it just because I've studied this for a long time. Uh, I think the average person doesn't really understand the difference in textualism and originalism because while they are very closely connected, they are not technically the same thing. And so, because I know that you're more eloquent in this kind of thing than I am, could you just give us sort of a brief understanding of that and also explain the differences with this particular case and why that matters? Sure. Um, So the, 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 the champion of terminology when it came to these two things was Antonin Scalia. And so a lot of the times when we debate it, we, we, we tend to look at it as, as Scalia would. So um, with that framework in mind, originalism tends to apply more to constitutional interpretation. And the question asks, you know, at, you know what was the original public meaning of uh, th- this part of the Constitution that we're looking at? Um, textualism is a little bit more narrow and it applies when you're looking at statutes and it tends to ask more what does the text of the statute say mm-hmm. now there's a reason that uh there's a difference between these two sometimes um you know with with constitutions um constitutions are not really written like a legal code that has you know a bunch of different code provisions that addresses uh that, that address specific situations uh constitutions are meant to address you know, large general concepts. Um, right, and, unless and, you're in Alabama where it deals with literally everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, if the federal constitution was like the Alabama constitution, we, you know, we, we, we would be uh, hopelessly lost when it comes to <laughs> understanding what our government can and can't do. Um, but, you know, be, because constitutions don't get as detailed as statutes, there's more room to look at what the original intent was. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there's a lot more room to look at things like, okay, l- l- let's look at the debates in uh, in the houses of Congress as they considered voting on this. Let's look at the debates in, um, in the state legislatures as they were ratifying this. Uh, the, because, you know, be, because it's more of a broad concept, you have more information that you have to consider. Textualism, according to Scalia, applies to statutes because, uh, you know, they're, they're more, you know, narrow in focus. And Scalia, one of his pet peeves, and honestly, I'm not 100% sure I agreed with him on this. And, and a lot of conservatives stopped short of going all in with Scalia. Sure. But he, he, one of his thoughts was when you're looking at a statute, you should not pull up the legislative history. You should not, like, if the records are available about the debates that took place, um, in the legislature, you really shouldn't open that up and, and dive into that. And, and I think part of the reason why Scalia and, and you know, even guys like Gorsuch um, had have an allergy to this is because for a very long time, whenever liberal judges wanted to find a way to get around what a statute said, that's what they would do. They would go back to the, you know, the floor debates or, you know, the House reports or, you know, whatever else was used to pass this thing and say, all right, you know, here it is. And then they, they just get around the plain language of the statute by doing that. Um, they also brought up the 
points that you know that kind of stuff is not accessible to the average person whereas a statute is all right so you know a statute is supposed to put a person of ordinary intelligence on notice of what's expected of them sometimes because you know there there are criminal sanctions that or there, there are real consequences that come if you don't comply with the thing so that's why textualism focuses on saying all right legislature regardless of what you should have what you were intending to do at the end of the day, we're going to hold you responsible for what you put in that statute, right? If you mm -hmm. meant to include something else, but you failed to include it, well, then it's your fault for being a bad communicator, okay? Because what we're trying to look out for is the average people that don't know the backstory to this thing, but they're they're trying to look at the statute and trying to figure out what's expected of them. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of the distinction between originalism and textualism. Well, you now, know, to, to a degree, I oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I think I know what you're going to ask. So okay, well, I was going to say, to a degree, I understand the distinction there, and I understand at least some of the rationale, because what you don't want to do is you don't want judges looking at law and speculating at, oh, this is probably what they meant, so this is how we'll interpret it, because then you get the Obamacare decision with John Roberts. Uh, yes, the, the, best this, example ever. Right, the, the you-know-what-we-meant clause in the Constitution, apparently. <laughs> um yep. But I, I understand the hesitancy to go like whole hog and just basically try to figure out and get inside the head of each and every person that voted for this law. I get that, A, you can drive yourself crazy, and B, that's bad judgment at that point. So I, I, get, the, I get the desire to stick strictly with the text of the law, but the issue that I, I can see running into is exactly what happened here, which is if you just look at the sheer text and ignore what the average person would have understood it to mean that the problem with that, and this is especially something that I have a little expertise in because I'm a communication major, language changes, words change, the connotation surrounding words change constantly. And so you run into some issues there because then you could have a law say literally the exact opposite of what was intended when it was written. And if we can just change laws by changing the language, then what's the point in recording law and writing it down and making sure that we have it for the future anyway? We have a way to update laws. It's just that's supposed to be done by the legislature, not nine unelected judges. You, you nailed it. Again, I highly recommend reading Alito's dissent because he, he's saying pretty much exactly the same thing you're saying, except mm -hmm. in more legalese. Um, oh, well, he's smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, well, I don't know. Lawyering is the process of taking a simple thing and making it complicated. Uh, whereas the job of a communicator is making, you know, complicated right. things and making it simple. So you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely nailing that. Um, uh, so, you know, and on that note, okay, so in fairness to Justice Gorsuch, um, there, there is a logic behind you know what he said you can if we're being intellectually honest about it you can see how somebody might come to the conclusion that all right you know i might not like it it may seem like an absurd result but i'm really going just with what the text says and here's the implications the problem is that gorsuch's view of textualism was not nuanced enough um alito called him out on this and beat him over the head with it in the dissent but you know, Scalia said, look, text, and Kavanaugh did too, said, look, textualism and literalism are not the same thing. All right, you know, the court today, by by taking this application of sex, is that nobody in their right minds would have thought of at the time mm -hmm. and, and, and making a drastic policy change. That's, you know, that, that's really more literalism than textualism. Textualism, at least according to Scalia, is re interpreting the statute according to 
the ordinary meaning that the words had at the time the statute was passed. Mm -hmm. So they, they made a big deal out of this. Like, we're not going with the literal meaning. We're going with the ordinary meaning um, that, you know, the average member of Congress would have considered uh, at the time the statute was passed. Um, and, 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 and that made that, that made one heck of a difference in how this this case uh, shook out. So. Yeah, I will say to Kavanaugh's credit, and you and I were both very skeptical of Kavanaugh when he was uh, being considered, not because of any of the, the crap that came out about these ridiculous allegations of him being a gang rapist, but we were looking at his legal theory and going, uh, he's kind of an unknown quantity, so at, at least in certain areas of the law. And uh, so I got to give props to Kavanaugh, and he even said, I believe if this is not an exact quote, it's something very similar, a paraphrase here. Uh, that basically he doesn't want people to just be fired because they're gay, but there's a right way to do it. Essentially saying, I'm a judge. I don't get to legislate. Congress has been doing this and, and been trying to pass this legislation. The Democrats have been trying to pass legislation that would essentially uh, broaden the meaning of Title VII to include homosexuals, trans, that sort of thing. And there's been some disagreement on that. Um but but Kavanaugh is basically saying that's the right way to do it. I'm not going to do it through this. That to me shows a great deal of restraint. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And um, a lot of us were concerned uh, when uh, uh, Kavanaugh was being confirmed that he might be the type of judge to, uh, you know, be a little bit more squishy, you know, maybe like Anthony Kennedy was and, and start you know, doing this, everybody thought that that Gorsuch would be able to completely separate the two. Whereas in this case, it's exactly the other way around. Kavanaugh, mm -hmm. um, I mean, and, and frankly, I, I do not. I, I mean, he he went beyond saying, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want you know gay people and transgender people to be fired. I mean, he, he really seemed to view it as more of a a positive good. Like he didn't have a moral problem with it. That, that that's at least the sense I got from it. And to me, that was alarming. But to his sure. credit, at the end of the day. The question is, regardless of, you know, what your view is on this, what are you going to do? Are you going to go with what the law says or are you going to read, you know, uh, what you want into the statute? And at the end of the day, Gorsuch read what he wanted into the statute and Kavanaugh restrained himself. Um, so right. I, and, I found that to be pretty incredible. Yeah. And along those same lines, and, and this goes back to a legal principle I, I literally just learned like uh, 24 hours ago watching Josh Hammer. Uh, but uh, this principle that really did resonate and make sense to me is that, uh, which kind of debunks the the entire argument surrounding this, is that Congress tends to not hide elephants in mouse holes. And yeah. so sort of the idea here is that what Gorsuch was trying to read into this and Kavanaugh was saying, well, no, it's not reasonable to believe that, um, that uh, whether they intended to or not, and, and Gorsuch actually brings that up, that he doesn't believe that they intended this, but ruled this way anyway, which is still baffling to me. Uh, mm -hmm. that they didn't intend for this to include that. And the idea that, that Congress is not going to intentionally hide gigantic sweeping legislation that completely changes the structure of how we understand law in one or two tiny words that you have to do a thousand different kinds of mental gymnastics to get to that conclusion. And so that was, yep. that was kind of ignored by Gorsuch and em embraced by Alito, Kavanaugh, and, and Thomas in this case. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I think I think the elephants and mouse holes thing was another uh, uh, phrase Justice Scalia coined, and uh, 
you know, in order to try to keep up the charade that he was following Scalia, Gorsuch actually brought that up. And he said, you know, all right, so let's get to the elephants and mouse holes canon of statutory interpretation. He says, all right, undoubtedly, you know, this is uh, this is an elephant because it's a big policy change. But then he go, but he responds to that. He says, but where's the mouse hole? He says, you know, discriminating against somebody based on sexual orientation or on gender identity necessarily includes you know, discrimination based on sex. So it's like, there's an elephant in there, but it's not hiding in a mouse hole. It's been staring at us the entire time and nobody saw it. And, you know, when you get to the point where you are arguing with a straight face that Congress intended, or Congress at least reasonably should have been aware that they were intending to keep homosexuality criminalized in 49 out of 50 states, transgenderism diagnosis mental disorder but allow this stuff in the workplace when you can argue that with a straight face yeah you've missed a big point there are several reasons why that argument completely falls flat and and gorsuch which is who is somebody that i admire usually for his logical takes on that i don't see how you can buy that i mean today the average person that hasn't studied history and doesn't realize that they weren't living in a world with 250 different genders maybe reasonably should assume, okay, well, Congress should have seen this coming, but they didn't live in that world. Uh, Basis of sex, you ask a thousand people and you'll get the same answer every single time back in 1964 that on the basis of sex means, oh, that means whether you're a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. Yep, you nailed it. And again, that that was was a central point that uh, Alito raised to, to tear down Gorsuch's argument. So I, I think I think you'll find uh, Alito's dissent, um, uh, you know, very likable when you read it because it, it's tracking with a lot of what you're saying right here. Well, uh, I, I do have a, a great deal of admiration for Alito, so I, I don't know. Maybe I just wound up because we have similar legal theories reaching a lot of the same <laughs> conclusions. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Matt. Uh, before we go, one real quick thing I wanted to ask you, is there anything coming down the pipe for the Supreme Court we need to keep an eye on? Yeah, there's there, there's a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, like I mentioned before, there, there, there are two cases involving, um, you know, whether Catholic schools who fired um, teachers are entitled to the ministerial exception. And that's that that's going to be uh, a case to watch out for the um, the name of the case uh, is Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Bureau, I think. Th- two hard names to get down. Um, but anyway, that one should be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And that's going to be very telling of, um, you know, how that exception is going to apply when churches and uh, Christian schools and, and the like are going to be saying, hey, we don't want to go along with this LGBT stuff in the workplace because we got religious convictions against this. So that, that's going to be one to keep an eye out for. Um, another one that's going to be coming out soon is June medical services versus key. Um, that is the first abortion case that the Supreme court agreed to hear since Justice Kavanaugh replaced justice Kennedy. And I was very optimistic that um, we now have the five votes to, you know, finally overrule Roe and Casey. Uh, but after, you know, uh, Gorsuch and, and, Roberts did what they did this weekend. Now I'm not, uh, now I'm not so sure. So now um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but you may remember that when we discussed that originally, I don't want to be the, I told you so kind of guy, but I, you remember, I was very skeptical of that observation and, and you were a lot more optimistic. I tell you what, I really hope that I'm wrong. And, uh, if I am wrong, we'll definitely have to go and get a steak dinner to celebrate. But uh <laughs> after this like i i'm the same as you i'm kind of looking at that as like yeah i don't think there's any way that they overturn roe 
Yeah, we're we're, we're going to find out. Um, you know, Gorsuch in particular is uh, he he's so much of an enigma to me because up until this point, he really has been Scalia two point oh. Mm. Um, and 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 so I, you know, I, I was optimistic that he would be able to set his personal views aside instead of uh, combining them with what the law actually says. But uh, it looks like we were wrong. And, and and Roberts as well. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but back when George H. W. Bush was uh, the the president. Uh, Roberts was the deputy solicitor general. So he argued a lot of cases, including in front of the Supreme court. And in the one abortion case, he got to argue, it was a uh, Russ versus Sullivan. It was a 1990 case. Mm-hmm. Um, he led with, uh, you know, telling the Supreme court that Roe was wrongly decided and should be thrown out. Even though the question before the court was, was something very, uh, it w- was, was much narrower. Uh, it, it involved whether, you know, abortion services were entitled to public funds and, and, and it was you know, even more narrow than that. But he led with saying, Hey, by the way, you guys got this really wrong and why don't you just throw the whole thing out? Now, if you're not going to go there, um, I'll answer, you know, the more narrow question that you're considering, you know, but you know, back then, I mean, Roberts hardly from being, you know, a squishy, you know, uh, establishment Republican, he was a firebrand conservative and very pro-life and went out of his way to make the point that Roe should be thrown out completely. Um, I just don't know how the years on the court have, have changed them. I think right now, and, and I could be wrong in my observation, but I don't think I am based on everything that I've read. I think that what's happened with Roberts is that Roberts has gotten so entrenched in the politics of it. And I don't even mean politics of left and right. I mean politics of he's far more concerned with how the court looks than he is whether or not they make correct or incorrect rulings. And that's the thing I, that I'm worried about. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I have a theory on that, on that, that, you know, that, that could be why he joined uh, Gorsuch's opinion. Um, I, I have a theory and I can't prove it that, you know, when, when the court took the case under the advisement, the initial vote was five to four with Gorsuch joining the liberals uh, and, and being the swing vote. But under the Supreme court's rules, um, whoever the most senior justice is, um, you know, among the, the, majority gets to decide who writes the opinion right so it would have been ginsburg bingo yep so it could be that roberts switched sides and let gorsuch write it in order to try to minimize the damage i I can't know for sure but you know it it would fit with this theory of trying to make the court look good because you know gorsuch for you know as badly as he screwed this up uh you know if it was one of the liberals that did this i mean that they, they would have had a, a far more sweeping and, you know, patently illegal opinion than what Gorsuch came out with. So, yeah. Can you imagine uh, a prevailing ob- opinion by Sotomayor? Eey. Oh, gosh. Yeah. God help us. Yeah. She's, she, she is more than anybody else. She is the flamethrower for the liberal bloc, you know. <laughs> um, so Right. A lot of people to... point to Ginsburg, and I understand that because she's been there longer. But to me, Sotomayor is by far the worst one. But yeah, I agree with you. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, it l- sounds like we've got quite a bit coming down that we'll have to keep an eye on. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, if anybody does want to support the foundation or learn more about it, where would they go to do that? Uh, thanks for asking, Caleb. You can go to www.morallaw.org. Uh, that's our, that's our website. You can come check it out. Um, we have, you know, copies of a lot of the briefs that we filed, including the one that we filed in this case available on our website. And, uh, if you're uh, interested in, you know, donating, we have instructions on how to do it there too. So thank you. All right, Matt, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we'll probably have you back on because like you said, there's a whole bunch of controversial stuff with the Supreme court coming down the pipe. So we'll see where that goes. Um, 
I got to tell you, this segment hasn't made me feel any better, but at least we did get the information out there. Thanks for being with us. No problem, Caleb. All right. and And we'll be back in just a second on Tactics. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we are going to just temporarily forego what's going on in the book of 1 Samuel because as as much as I love the book of 1 Samuel and as much as I want to continue, and, and we are going to continue in that series, probably resuming it on Monday, uh, I got into a discussion that sort of brought me to studying this particular passage and, and thinking about it, and I think it's very appropriate the only real lead up that you need to have to this particular Bible story is that Jesus and his disciples are doing what they typically do in the gospel narratives, and that's they're traveling around from town to town, and Jesus is teaching people. So in their travels, as you can imagine, there's quite a few times where they need a place to stay, and that's exactly what happens in this one particular story. So let's go ahead and look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 52 through 56. And it says, And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And I know that, just like every other human being, I'm I'm susceptible to the things that are going on around me, and, and that's the reason that I felt that this lesson was very appropriate. In that little episode with the gospel, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke with John and James, I find it really, really fascinating because here they are going around this area in Judea, and uh, they're coming to a village of Samaritans, and. I'm not going to go into a whole history lesson about why the Samaritans and the Jews really don't like each other, but suffice it to say that that was about as tense as it gets. Now, right now, we are at a time in this country, and I understand that there are a lot of hurt feelings, there's a lot of bad history, a lot of bad blood, and and a lot of things that, even though I think that there's a, a good deal of it that is somewhat manufactured for political purposes, there's a lot of it that's not. There's a lot of it that's legitimate. And we all know and understand that. Like, if you look back through history with the civil rights movement and look back even further with things like slavery, Jim Crow, so on and so forth, we understand those things. Every reasonable, rational person understands that regardless of of whether you think it's still going on today, and I happen to be of the opinion that it's by the the vast majority uh, of, by, by any logical measure, it's really not going on very much today as it was then, regardless of whether you hold that position like I do. 
you understand the underlying reason why that animosity or that distrust would be there. And you know what? With the Samaritans and the Jews, some of the bad blood between them was 100% legitimate too. And if you look at this passage, I think it's interesting because the Bible doesn't waste any words. And it goes out of its way to point a couple of things out. It doesn't just say that the village of the Samaritans rejected him. It says that they rejected to give the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself any kind of shelter or room and board for the night because they were traveling to Jerusalem. So what does that mean? It means that the Samaritans didn't want them in their town because they were Jewish. Now, remember, Samaritans are kind of like half-breeds that are part Jewish and part something else, but the Jews, I mean, sometimes pretty horribly, had persecuted them, and they had persecuted the Jews, and there's just a lot of bad blood between these two tribes. And because of that, these people are traveling to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans are like, uh, no, you guys can sleep outside for all we care. You can stick it. Go somewhere else. I mean, of course, I'm adding my own flair there, but that's essentially what happened. They wouldn't even allow these people to sleep in their town because they were Jews. James and John's reaction is fascinating to me because these are two people, disciples of Christ, at Christ's side all the time. John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loves. He's the one whom Jesus himself handpicked to take care of his mom when he died. He's about as close to Jesus as anybody. And it's really kind of unclear. Luke is the most chronological of, of all the Gospels. But because, you know, it's, it's covering three years and just a few chapters, and we don't really have a whole lot on Jesus' life, uh, we don't know exactly when in the ministry this happened, but it probably wasn't super early. It probably wasn't really close to the crucifixion either. But my point in all of that is, James and John have been traveling with Jesus for a while. They knew the deal. They'd been listening to his teachings. And yet their reaction when this happens to them, and they were justified, I think, to some degree in being upset. Because not only have they been rejected from this town, they've been rejected from this town because of racism. Now think about that. And then James and John's reaction is, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and have this entire town destroyed? I'm assuming, if this is any kind of normal town, that there are women and children and innocent people in that town. James and John had a legitimate claim to being persecuted against because of their race. And what was their reaction? Burn it all down. Take out everybody. Whether they were racist against us or not, let's just get the entire village, wipe it off the face of the map, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, James and John were Jews. Do you think that they were thrilled about sleeping in a Samaritan town? Do you think that they that was their first choice? Now, maybe there weren't other options around and they felt desperate. Maybe they were just being super magnanimous and decided, hey, this one's nearby, we'll ask them. And, uh, you know, we'll even be the bigger person. 
We'll even go into this town, even though they're Samaritans and we don't like them, we'll be the big magnanimous people that come in and are like, you know what, it's okay. Do you see how much pride is going on in the hearts of James and John here? Because I think reading this passage, the indication that is given here, and I don't know exactly where their mind was beforehand, but I think that this is a a pretty good, plausible explanation as to why their reaction is so over the top. The way that they're looking at it is, look, we were already deciding to be the bigger person, and you know what, we'll even be nice enough to stay in your town. And then they were immediately slighted and, and spat upon, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm meaning that figuratively, of course, even though that really did happen to Jesus later in the, uh, in the gospel. And they just rejected him and turned them out and didn't want anything to do with them. And so I think maybe they had already psyched themselves up and put themselves in the mindset and is like, look at me, I'm going to be so generous and magnanimous that even I, a Jew, who is clearly better than those Samaritans, I'm just willing to put that aside and, and stay in their town. And then the Samaritans are like, yeah, we don't want nothing to do with y'all. You're, you're Jews. Do you see a parallel here? Do you see that what is going on here could somewhat be equated to what's going on with the riots. That James and John have a legitimate claim to being racially persecuted here. And their reaction is, let's just take out the whole town. We don't care who we hurt. I see a pretty strong parallel between those two things. And I'm in no way trying to do that to somehow condone the violence that's been going on in this country around the the protests and whatnot. In fact, I'm doing the exact opposite. That's the position that James and John took. Meditate on that for a second. That's who they were in that moment. And Jesus immediately rebukes them. He immediately looks at them and goes like, uh, you have the 180 degree opposite spirit of what you're supposed to have. He says, and this is the actual quote, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy life. I came to save it. That's a powerful moment for Jesus. It's a powerful moment for his disciples even when they had legitimate claims of being aggrieved for something as petty as the fact that they were Jews and the other guys were Samaritans and they didn't like them because of their race, the, the outrage was understandable. The reaction was not. Because I'm sure Jesus has is, is got to be sitting there thinking like, have you guys not listened to a word I've said this whole time? Have you not been paying attention when I'm going out and giving sermons? You missed that part about turning the other cheek. Did you fall asleep during that one? But that's who James and John were. They were like these filthy Samaritans. And here's the other part of that too, because they had some racial animosity within themselves as well. Not, I think, unlike the people that are rioting and breaking things and smashing windows. 
Uh, some of them are even doing so to black neighborhoods and black owned businesses and specifically saying, oh, well, the, the white bank owners own them. How do they know that the bank owner is white? But they're, they're like, oh, that, that's all controlled by the white banks. And that's really white money. We don't really even care that the owner is, is a black person and they're going to have to deal with this. See, that level of outrage brings you to a level of irrationality, and that's exactly what happens to James and John in this exact moment. James and John look at this, and they react basically the same way that these rioters do. And you have to think about it this way. This town, what they did was not, you know, not only was it racially motivated, but they also rejected the Lord and Savior. And Jesus, the one whom they've rejected, is like, yeah, that, that's not the way that we are. That's not what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to try to save life. We're supposed to bring the gospel to people. We're not here to destroy everybody that doesn't like us. That's not the role that my father sent me here for. And so when you understand that aspect of it, you have to remember that, too, there's some racial animosity coming from James and John as well. That they're looking at this, and do you really think that they would have had exactly the same reaction if this were a town of, of Israelites? Like, do you think that if a town, and by the way, I'm sure this happened to the multiple times on the travels. I don't know if it had happened before this event, but just looking at the gospel narrative and the way that Jesus was treated throughout all of Galilee and, and that region— I got to believe that there were town of Israelites that probably did the same thing. They did probably didn't do so because they were Jews because they would have been Jews too. But you got to believe that there were Israelites and, and towns that just ran them out. Do you think that James and John went, Hey, Jesus, you want to just wipe this one off the map? I don't think they would have done that unless it were a Samaritan town. And so here you have two parties on the one side, James and John on the other side, the Samaritan village that have some deep-seated racial hatred for one another. And James and John, probably even trying to do the right thing at the onset, have a ridiculous overreaction to being treated wrongly based on their race. And Jesus rebukes them immediately and says, no, that's wrong. That is not how you react to that. Because Jesus understood a very simple concept. You cannot beat hatred with anything other than love. And to illustrate this, let's just look at John himself. Let's go to the gospel, or let's go to the book, sorry, of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where it states, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's the same man. That same John that when a group of Samaritans discriminate against him because of his race, his immediate reaction is, let's just bring down fire from heaven, burn up the entire village, women, children, whatever. Let's just wipe them off the face of the earth, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's John then. And you just read the words that John himself wrote through inspiration in the book of 1 John years later. 
How do you get there? How do you go from that to any man that hates his brother walks in darkness and the light is not in him? How do you make that transition? There's only one way to do it. There has always only been one way to do that. And that is by meditating upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. Maybe what Jesus had been teaching up until that point hadn't quite 100% sunk in, and that's a human problem. That's something that happens to people that have been members of the church for 60, 70, 80 years from time to time. We're human beings. We're flawed. It happens. I get that. But over time, daily meditating, thinking about the words of Christ, the teachings that he gave people, talking about how we're all God's children, that he created all of us, that there is in no, there's no division in the kingdom of heaven between Jews and Greeks and Samaritans, that all are supposed to come to repentance through him. That's the only way a person's heart can change that much. There's just not another force on this planet that can do that. And that's illustrated pretty well. In fact, you may remember that if you've read that entire chapter there in 1 John 2, he actually ends that chapter, spends the majority of the, the latter part of that chapter talking about the family of the church. Talking about other people who, by the point that First John is written, is wildly diverse, that includes not only Jews and Samaritans, but Gentiles, Romans, all kinds of different things. And he talks about each of them as their family and saying, anybody that does not see it that way is walking in darkness. Why is John able to say that? Because that was him. He was that guy. The guy that didn't even mind taking out innocent people because they had wronged him on the basis of his race. And yet he has the strength to, years later, after daily diving into the teachings of Jesus Christ and living in the love of Jesus... Say something like, anybody that hates his brother has no part in the kingdom of heaven. That is a transformation that only the blood of Christ can make. Remember that John's also the apostle that is the only one that includes the woman in the well, a Samaritan woman that includes that story in his gospel. John understood this because he understood the transformation that took place in his own life. It wasn't theory to him. It wasn't some kind of theological exercise. He was a changed man. And if you want that kind of salvation, if you want that kind of turnaround in your life, I'm telling you right now, there's only one place to do it, and that's the teachings of Christ. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.